0: Okay, we are, we're going to jump into it here as we uh, continue our um, journey through the book of Jeremiah. Uh, a great book, as we've uh, just seen good stuff come out of it. And uh, just thank Sammy for his reading for us. That's the passage we're going to work from today is um, uh, Jeremiah chapter 8. And look, and look a little bit of Jeremiah 19 as well um, as we see that uh, worked out. Uh, did you know that uh, Australia has a sovereign head of state? You probably did. And yes, you're right, as you've all guessed it, Um, it is uh, Queen Elizabeth of England. She is our Sovereign Head of State. When she's in Australia, uh, she's actually known as the Queen of Australia, not the Queen of England, when she's actually in Australia on her royal duties. Her title when she's in Australia is this. uh, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, Queen of Australia and her other realms and territories. So that's her title when she's uh, in Australia. Um, Really though, she's only a sovereign in uh, ceremonial and symbolic ways. Not really exercising any real power uh, in Australia. Um, uh, She's a powerless sovereign, which is nearly the opposite to what the word means when you think about the word sovereign. She's a powerless sovereign. Uh, Not so with God. Not so with God. God is the sovereign who holds all power and rightfully commands full and total respect. But is that the way we see him? Is that the way we see the Lord of the universe as sovereign and having or commanding all respect? Just for a minute now as we look at uh, verses 11 and 12 in that passage again uh, from Jeremiah. It says there in verse 11, now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord Behold, I am shaving disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil ways and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is in vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to their stubbornness of his evil heart? Uh, Father, we thank you today that we can gather again this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the precious gift that we have in your word. We thank you today, Lord, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, which is God in spirit, who breathes power and life into this word. We ask now, Holy Spirit, you would come and uh, breathe life into this word as we think about the sovereignty of God and our responsibility as uh, creations of Him. Uh, We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would just uh, pull back the scales from our eyes and that we would get a glimpse of the glory of God in His sovereignty. Uh, Lord, today we ask and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, God is brilliant, well, the Holy Spirit is brilliant at giving us word pictures that really do communicate something to us. Uh, As Sammy read there earlier on, we saw that Jeremiah was asked by God to go down to the potter's house and to watch the potter at his work. And it's here that God shows Jeremiah something very clear about God and what he's going to do, or what he's calling the people of uh, Judah to. Now, uh, potter is an amazing skill. I watched a couple of little uh, clips of it earlier this week. Uh, they just grab this lump of wet clay and they put it onto this sort of flat spinning disc and they just put their fingers and thumbs in certain places and, and all of a sudden they shape that wet lump of clay Uh, into some sort of creation of their own design. It's incredible skill and gift that they have. Uh, The wheel spins and spins and spins quite fast, and they put their fingers on the clay and begins to take the shape. Uh, It could be something uh, emerging out of this lump. It could be a bowl or a cup or a saucer or a pot, but it's anything that that the potter desires to make out of that lump of clay. And it's all at the control of the potter. And there's an object lesson here for Jeremiah, also us, as we think and meditate over this picture that's been given to Jeremiah and also given to us today as we think and reflect on that. And it communicates something to us here. And the clear point that God makes out of this passage, out of this word picture that he gives for us here, is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is like the potter, shaping the clay according to his design and purpose, Except that God's not really working with clay, even though we sort of were born from the dust, as it were, and then back in the beginning. But he's working in our lives, sovereignly shaping us. Also in this passage, as we think about that, we're going to see that we human beings also are responsible for our actions in turning towards God through this sovereign shaping in our lives. So let's jump in here and have a look at this. God's sovereignty work in our lives and our responsibility in our actions to conform to God's ways. Firstly, here in God's sovereignty, this passage is all about God. This passage is all about God. God is the major player and the central feature in all of the book of Jeremiah. It's not Jeremiah. It's not the people of Judah or the people of Israel. It's actually God. We certainly feature in the Bible as people, no doubt about that. There's lots said about us being created by God. But God is the central being in the Bible. The Bible is all about God and particularly about Jesus Christ, his son. So therefore, not only is God central in the Bible, he's central in this particular passage where we are as well. And this passage here features God as the sovereign of the universe. The sovereign, all-powerful being. Perhaps just to help us hear what sovereign means, it's this. It is to be the supreme ruler or the ultimate in control or to be sovereign means you are free to do whatever you like without any interference or restraints. You exercise this free, sovereign power and nothing can restrain you or hold you back. Example, Australia holds sovereignty over all its lands and territories. No other nation can interfere in Australia's rule upon its sovereign territories. They're free to exercise their rule there. So we think about this idea of sovereignty. Let's look back into this passage here in verses 5-10 to and we'll see here with the authority that God speaks in. So look for the eyes when I read through this. What the eye will do. So starting in verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel. Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. All of those eyes is the person of God. Speaking with supreme, sovereign authority. When God says, I will do this or I will do that, God is not relying on some other power from outside of himself as it were to carry that out. God does that within his own boundaries. God in his sovereignty holds all power and all authority. To do as he seems right to do. God is free to exercise his sovereignty, and there is no one, no force, no thing whatsoever that can push back God's hand from accomplishing his will. There is no conceivable challenge whatsoever to God's sovereignty. There is nothing in this universe that can even pose a threat to God's sovereignty over the universe. And this is one of the most powerful things about reading the Old Testament. Sometimes people say, oh, I don't get anything out of the Old Testament. I thought it so hard, I don't understand it. Here's one of these classic examples where you see something really clear here about God. You stop and you read a passage like this and it sort of, it pulls you up. It sort of stops you in your tracks God's God just, I... I, I will do this. And there is nothing there to stop God. He's free to exercise the sovereignty. The Bible also gives us this picture here of this limitless scope of God's divine authority and God's divine sovereignty as well. There's a verse in, in Proverbs 16 which is very, very tiny, but it says a lot. It says this in Proverbs 16:33, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord just a tiny, tiny little verse very, very powerful the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord what does that mean? that means when you and I play Monopoly or Settlers of Catan when we throw that dice God controls that dice when the lot is cast into the lap it's every decision is from the Lord I just wish for a few more sixes every now and again. That's what I like to get. Just not sevens in Qatar. This shows us that God is ultimately in control in every single thing into the mind detail. God just does, oh, I'll just look over the big stuff and I just won't worry about the small stuff. God is intimately in sovereign control over every single thing happening all around the world right down to the smallest detail. It's a massive concept, it's a massive idea, it's a massive truth, it's more than an idea. But not only is God controlling right in here now in his own way, but he's doing this in every other possible place in this world, in the universe. And what's what's really amazing here about the Bible, the Bible doesn't seek to explain or justify God's sovereignty. It just speaks as it's a given, there's no sort of justification here why God is sovereign. It's just, it's just a known fact. God is sovereign. The Old Testament in particular just treats God as a fact that he is sovereign. If you've been to our and Grow Groups the last few weeks, you would have seen this in Daniel a few times. It's just amazing what happens. In Daniel 4.17, uh, he says this, this. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end, that the living, that's us, that the living may know that the Most High, which is God, rules, is sovereign, over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar's had this dream and he couldn't work it out. Daniel's come in and he's got a time that his dream's about. And you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar, well, he was the kingpin of the world at the time and he, he was in a a natural sense, where God was over and above him. And he said there, No, Nebuchadnezzar, the Most High, he rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. God is sovereign. He rules the kingdom of men. It's just a given understanding in the Old Testament. We are just to accept it and believe it. You see, there's a problem though with that. Particularly with Israel and I think sometimes with us as well. And the problem with that, if we don't get this idea of understanding God's sovereignty even in some fashion, we have a very small and diminished view of who God is. If we don't see God as ultimately sovereign, it actually tries to sort of constrain God back into some sort of box because we get this small view of who He is. What we easily forget is that God today determines whether I live out to see the rest of this talk. Now that's not trying to drop a bombshell in. that's just acknowledging the fact. God's, uh, my life is in God's hands. Whether I see the rest of this day out is determined by God. The very fact that I'm breathing right now is an act of God's grace. It's a demonstration of God's grace. It's trying to get us to get a big picture of who God is. A really big picture of who God is. But yet often, we can so easily go about living life thinking we are the captain of our life. I'm in control of my life. I do what I like and I don't care who I have the answer to. It's all about me. The sovereign supreme position of God is meant to stop us in our tracks and look up to him in awe and in worship. That he's the God who gives me breath. The sovereignty of God is, made, is meant to make us look up to him with thanksgiving and with confidence as well. The sovereignty of God also is meant to make us look up to him with love and joyful obedience in this great sovereign Lord. Why? Why? Because not only is God supremely sovereign, God is supremely good. He's not a tyrant. He's a good sovereign, a loving sovereign, a gracious sovereign, as well as a holy sovereign, a just sovereign, and a righteous sovereign. And he holds supreme power. God is a worthy sovereign in every possible conceivable way because of his glorious perfections. That he shows us yet we easily get a small picture of God we don't get this big picture of a sovereign God who rules everything God comes to Israel in this passage in his sovereignty in his power without limit and he warns them about their willful rejecting behavior towards him as their sovereign Lord God comes to them and calls them back to him here is the verse 11. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, this is the sovereign speaking, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return, every one of you, from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Now, you might think this seems like really foreign language from God. I'm shaping disaster against you. God's going to use other nations as instruments and tools in His hands as it were to discipline the nation of Judah at this particular time because they're living in absolute rebellion before Him. God says, I'm shaping disaster. I'm planning discipline against you. Your rebellious ways, I'm warning you, your rebellious ways will only lead to ruin Judah. Return. Come back to me. God's saying, turn back from your evil ways and stop this reckless, undisciplined living rebelling against me. But here we see next the depth of the brokenness and the blindness and the hardness of Judah. And the way they treat God's sovereignty in the very next verse. Verse 12. But they say, this is Judah now responding... (laughs) that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. I thought that a very interesting phrase there at the start there, that is in vain. So I spent a bit of time thinking about it this week and looked up a few dictionaries. One Bible dictionary translated the phrase, that is in vain, like this. To hell with what you've got to say, God. That's how they translated it. If you've got the NLT, It says this, God, don't waste your breath on us. We're going our own way. I look at that and I thought, what are you guys thinking? is that not the height of absolute stupidity? Isn't that just contempt to the nth degree? Who do you think you are, Judah, that you could speak to the sovereign like that? To hell with what you're thinking, God. We're going to go our own way. On what basis of power do they think they've got that they can respond to God like that? Who do you think you are? That you can tell the sovereign who has free right to do anything with limitless power, don't waste your breath on us, God. we go going on our own way. It's amazing that they can respond like that. And God says in the next verse that, in the next verse, pretty well that he says. Therefore, thus says the Lord. In verse thirteen, ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? Who in the earth would respond like this? The absolute sovereign, the Virgin Israel, has done a very horrible thing. God is sovereign. He's worthy of all worship, honour, praise and obedience. How should we respond to him then? How should we, as his creation, respond to his sovereignty in this way? God has warned you and He actually does it again in a very graphic way in chapter 19. Verses 10 and 11, he says this. He tells Jeremiah to take out this flask, add into the belly and get a bunch of elves to come with you. And this is what's going to happen. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you, and you shall say to them, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: So will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, so that it can be never mended. Men shall bury in topheath because there will be no place else to bury. If you read through chapter nine, it's all just actually an outplaying here of God's judgment upon Jeremiah that time, uh, not uh, upon Judah. Here it is. That's the warning. So what should the response be? And what should the response be for us as well as we think about that? Well, the response is the same for both Judah back then and us today. The call from God is to repent. The call from God is to turn back. The call from God is to come back to Him. In chapter 18, verse 11, it says there, it says, return every one of you from His evil way. That word return there, if its if you want to take it from the Greek back into sort of New Testament language, is the same word as repent. It's turned back. It's repent. It's come back to me. Repent is the responsible action that we are called to carry out as God's creation. So if we pick up these couple of thoughts here and maybe join them together, we pick up that God is sovereign. We don't dispute that in the Bible. He is sovereign. But that doesn't mean that we are mindless robots as it were walking around this earth on autopilot as God sort of just pushes a button. We are responsible human beings who make responsible choices and are called to be responsible for our actions as well. So God calls us to the responsible action of repenting or returning back to Him as our sovereign creator. And this has been God's call right throughout the ages. Right throughout the ages. When Jesus himself came onto the scene in the book of Mark at the beginning of his ministry, he says this in Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Return to me and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe has always been the call. This is the right and the correct response towards a sovereign God. These are the conditions that we receive the gift of salvation from God. If we don't repent and if we don't believe, well then we won't receive the gift of salvation. God calls us to repent, turn from our sinful living and turn towards Him and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and we receive the gift of salvation. You want to ask, say, though, what does the word repent mean? It's sort of a word we don't use too often. What does the word repent mean? How does it look? Does it simply mean that I've just got to change things in my life and sort of to get God on my good side? Is that what repenting means? You know, it's the old thing. Do I swear a little less? Do I drink a little less? Maybe do I go to church a little bit more? Is that what repenting is? The word repentance means a change of heart a change of mind, a complete change of attitude. Repentance means it's a deep inner change that takes place in the whole person, not just in parts of us. It's deep and it's right throughout the whole person. Repentance is coming to a realisation that the way I've been living in the past has been all wrong. I'm now fully convinced that I need to turn around and live in a whole new direction. Perhaps a great example of that from the Bible is the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. That gives us a real insight into the change of heart. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, he comes to his dad one day and says, Dad, hey, look, you've got a great business here, but this is not for me. And I know half of it's mine, another half is the elder brother. Can you just give me my half now? I'll cash it in. I want to go and do my own thing. He does. He gets the dad's very gracious, cashes in half the business, gives him the money, and he's off. He's off to Las Vegas uh, for fast women, fast cars, and fast food probably as well. He wants all the here and now attractions of this world. The prodigal son goes and lives it up as best as he possibly could. But then one day the money runs out, and he's got nothing left except to sit in a pig pen as it were, and feed the pigs to try and get enough money to buy a little bit of food to keep himself alive. Sitting in that pig pen, it says, sitting in that pig pen, he comes to a realisation that his past way of living has all been wrong. He repents. He walks out of that pig pen and returns back to his father. It's a whole change of heart. It's a whole change of attitude. And that is the right response to God's sovereignty. When we've been living in our own way in opposition to God, it's only right that we now turn back to Him and and let Him become our sovereign Lord again. Who are we to live in rebellion against the sovereign Lord? Who do we think we are that we can live like that? The very fact that we're still alive in this rebellion is a picture of God's grace towards us. It is gracious and patient, wanting us to come back to Him. And the world we live in understands this. They do. They understand this idea of reform or change. Now We have a, a prison system. We have a prison system. And is it only for punishment? Quite a bit of it is, but it's also for a reform and change. It's called a corrections system. They're hoping that someone goes in there in this form of punishment, that they'll come out of it reformed and changed on the other side and won't return back to a life of crime, but they'll actually return to being a good uh, citizen who now follows the sovereign laws of Australia instead of breaking these laws all the time. So the world understands that. But unfortunately, the prison system can't do a deep inner heart change. I looked at some stats earlier in the week and I think the reoffending rate is around fifty per cent at the moment. So within two years, nearly every prisoner who gets out of prison will be back in again within a couple of years. That's amazing, nearly half of them are back in again. It's not able to do this deep in a heart change, can only offer it a deterrent from law breaking, not something deep. But this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ is radically different. Radically different. He comes in and changes us from the inside out. And God, in a gracious, sovereign act, gives us this gift of deep inner repentance or turning towards Him out of His graciousness. Acts chapter 11.18 says this, When they had heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then... To the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. A glorious gift that God gives in his heart change to turn to him. The Holy Spirit of God comes and renews our heart, transforms our heart in a sovereign act of grace. God is the initial cause of our salvation as his spirit works in us. The Spirit turns our heart towards God by revealing the beauty of who Jesus Christ is and what He's done for us. And we are drawn to this glorious God as our eyes are opened up to the perfection of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle that is performed when somebody is born again, when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus. It's a glorious miracle. And the picture we get is this. In our natural state, as it were, we are walking away from God. God's over there and we are just walking away from Him in our natural state the Holy Spirit comes to us and reveals the wonder of who Christ is. Initially, we're like Judah. We don't want to bar of who God is. You can say what you like, God. The Spirit comes and opens our eyes up to the beauty of Christ and then we are drawn towards this glorious being in Jesus Christ. And a conversion in our heart is now inclined back towards Him and to follow Him. So now in repentance, turning to Him, we are no longer intentionally Walk, walking in a sinful way away from God but now towards Him in loving obedience, following His ways that glorify Him and are best for us. And what, what we've got to also understand here about this thing called repentance or this turning to God is that it's there's a, there's a one-time or there's a decisive act at conversion where God turns our heart and reorientates us towards Him. That happens at conversion. It's this very decisive work but also, there's an ongoing work of repentance. Once, in a decisive way, when we're born again, but it's also ongoing for the rest of our lives as well. Martin Luther, who uh, nailed his 95 Theses on the, the door of the Wittenberg Chapel uh, nearly uh, 500 years ago, uh, one of the first theses of his 95 Theses is, it is God's will that, that the entire life of a Christian is lived in repentance. But we are continually repenting. We are continually turning towards God. Paul writes in Ephesians, they're about putting off and putting on, which is pictures again of repentance. Putting off or turning away from simple choices and putting on the right choices in following God. And we are like that every day. In the power of God's spirit, we are faced with choices. Faced with choices. And these choices, I guess, are like roundabouts in life. We travel down the road of life, and it so were, we hit these roundabouts where there's a choice. What do we do? We have a choice at a roundabout to sort of keep going on the correct course, or roundabouts have all these options and exits, you can jump off here, there and everywhere on a roundabout. <coughs> so at the roundabout of life that we're on, we have to ask ourselves, when I come to this roundabout, will I follow on the right course? Or will I make a left turn off the roundabout and follow the temptation of pride and allow it to rule me, allow it to shape me, and allow it to work in me in a very unloving way to mock or ridicule other people from my position of pride. That's the choice we have at the roundabout of life in the life of repentance. Or will I stay the course on that roundabout and keep heading towards Christ and turn away from that broken, sinful behaviour that comes from pride? The life of repentance, though, comes about because of God's work deeply, deeply done in us. And God's work is, not, is only possible because of what Jesus has achieved through his life, a life that needed no repentance in the life of Christ. It says this in Second Corinthians 5.21, a familiar passage. For our sake, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus needed no repentance. He takes upon himself our brokenness so we can enter into this life of wholeness now. But even as we think about the death of Christ, it's amazing here how we'll see it's linked to God's sovereignty in working these things together. Come with me to Acts chapter 2, 22 and 24. It says this, men of Israel, this is Peter speaking, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's God's sovereignty right there in the death of Jesus Christ, his son. It says there, according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, God's sovereignly working in the crucifixion of Christ so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be brought back to God, so that we too can repent so that we can turn back towards Him and come and know this glorious God. And the picture we need to see also in His repentance, there's an end point, a very, very glorious end point. 1 Peter 3.18 gives us this end point here of what repentance is all about. It says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That Jesus might bring us to God. That Jesus would bring us to God. This is the gospel of repentance. This is the glorious end that what Jesus has done for us. He brings us to God. He brings us back to this sovereign creator. He brings us back to this sovereign Lord. This is the goal of repentance and this is the goal of the gospel at the end of the day. We come back to God. So the call today is the same as Judah's day two and a half thousand years ago. Nothing's changed. God is sovereign. Despite what we may think or see or experience around about us, God is sovereign and he calls each and every one of us to repent, to return, to submit to him as our Lord. So we need to ask ourselves, On the road of life. What are you and I going to do when we get to the next roundabout? The next choice. The next temptation. The next thing that comes in our mind. What are we going to do when we hit that roundabout? Will we be like Judah? And stiffen our neck and harden our heart and thumb our nose ridiculously at the sovereign Lord? Or will we turn towards the Sovereign Lord who graciously beckons us, return, come. He calls us today, he really calls us today to turn towards him joyfully as our Lord and as our Sovereign Master. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you this morning and thank you again for your word to us uh, from Jeremiah. Father, we thank you uh, for the glorious truth that you are absolutely sovereign. And Lord, that should inspire uh, worship and awe, uh, thanksgiving, trembling, confidence. It should inspire a whole range of things within us. And Lord, your word also, as we think about that in being sovereign, should inspire us to turn to you, to repent, to come before you again as our gracious, sovereign Lord. Lord, there's much that we don't understand about sovereignty when we see the way things work out around us. We look at the atrocities happening in New Zealand, and Lord, we can't fathom that, but we know and understand that you are sovereign in that mosque when all those things are taking place. Lord, your call today is not for us to try and understand all that or work all that out and what you were trying to do there. Our call today is to repent. Our response today is to return to you. Lord, I think of the passage in Luke where those people come to Jesus and they said to Jesus, Jesus, what do you think about that tower that fell in so long and hey, 18 people died? Jesus, what about what Pilate did to all those people in the temple, that he, he murdered them and slayed them? How simple was that? And Jesus says, forget about the disaster. He said, unless you too repent, you will also likewise perish. Jesus' then was to turn to him. So God, I pray today for those who perhaps have never done that before, never really given you a great deal of thought, maybe are just like Judah humming their nose at you. Today, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and as we'll peel back the scales from their eyes. Let them see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ bleeding and dying on the cross, bearing and carrying our sin and calling us to come to him. For we ask for that sovereign work to take place today and we ask it in Jesus' name. I mean